to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Being here this morning and take your Bibles to join with me as we work on our way through 2 Corinthians. We're going to finish off the end of chapter 1 and we're going to make the turn into the second chapter. And just to give you an introduction, as we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 23, or 2 Corinthians, I should say. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 23 through 2 through 11. It's just as a reminder, originally Paul had planned to travel from Ephesus through Macedonia back to Corinth on his way back from Jerusalem to deliver the money he had collected for for the believers in Judea. You might remember there was a famine in in the area of Judea, so Paul was making his rounds to all the uh, Asian and Greek churches collecting money to bring back to them. In the meantime, he had sent Timothy to visit Corinthians on his behalf. When Timothy arrived in Corinth, he found that the church was in turmoil, most most likely in response to the arrival of Paul's opponents that we're going to find here in this book. When Paul learned of this, he decided to proceed immediately to Corinth to resolve the issues first and then travel on to Macedonia before returning to Corinth for a second visit. And that was his plan, but as we saw, that did not happen. Paul's visit, however, turned out to be very painful as a result of the church's open rebellion against him. At the time, Paul decided it was best to suffer humiliation and leave without retaliating or taking care of the situation, in order to extend mercy to the Corinthians. Once he was back in Ephesus, Paul sent Titus back to Corinth with a tearful and what he describes a very severe letter that's now lost, we no longer have that, warning the church of God's judgment if they did not repent of how they treated him. As we look in chapter 2, verse 1, is we're going to see that Paul references that painful visit after writing 1 Corinthians. It ended up being a very short visit due to the conflict. Paul says that that encounter was very painful and caused him deep hurt. And Paul's dilemma was one that probably you and I would have if we were to suffer through the same experience. His dilemma was, will she come back to the church and make what's right, what's wrong right? Should he stay away? Should he just uh, you know, avoid the conflict altogether? And all he decided to write a letter. And Paul makes clear that just as his first change of plans was a Christ-like act in accordance with the promises of God, so too his decision not to come but to send them a tearful letter was an expression of God's love to them. Father, I ask for you to give me a clear mind and Lord, give me a tongue that does not stutter and, and is, is uh, shaky. I pray that you would just speak in a mighty way through what we're going to read and hear today. Let me speak words that only are to build up and edify. I pray that you would take the words and you would uh, 
take your spirit and let them find good soil. I pray that you would fill up what may be lacking in my knowledge uh, and in my speaking, and may your spirit do the work that you have designed to do here this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Have you ever had a time when there was conflict between you and someone else? It's not fun, is it? And many times when that happens, especially if it was someone that you love and you care about, the conflict can be so so hurtful, so much painful, that all you want to do is you just want to stay away from it. Right? You want to avoid it at all costs. We've done that. Or maybe your first reaction is to go there with guns blazing and ready just to level the playing field. And we probably have done that also. And that's where Paul is, as I've just read to you, the kind of the history, kind of an introduction of what's going on here. But Paul, as he's in the Spirit of God, recognizes that to go in there with a flamethrower or to avoid it is not the issue. But he realizes the problem is very important and it needs to be addressed. And we're going to examine how to do that in a godly way this morning. But in its context, it's not between just one person and another, but it's between one person that involves a whole church. So what do you do if it involves a whole church? We have understand this type of thing, and some of us, we may now see some of the wisdom of what we've done, and maybe some of the folly, but yet God is true in all things. But in here, we're going to see that Paul has a love for his church, and even though they are at odds at this moment, Paul desires to reconcile with them. And that should always be what we're looking for, is reconciliation. And what we're going to find today is that the big idea, if you're taking notes, the big idea for today's passage is reconciliation. Reconciliation through what we call discipline, church discipline. And Paul is going to address them and say, we need to take care of this issue. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 1, looking at verse 23, where Paul says he wants to share with them his motivation for not returning. He says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but that we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm, or you should stand firm in your faith. First thing that Paul is doing here is he's showing them his motivation. In other words, he defends his integrity. Remember, that was under attack last week. That's what we talked about. Paul's integrity. Was he a man who was double-minded? Did he say yes, yes, when he actually meant no, no? Or it was it vice versa? But Paul is defending his integrity, and now he wants to share with them, here's why I did not come. Now, in verse 12 of this chapter, Paul uses his own conscience as his, as his witness. In verse 23, he's now calling God as his witness. As he says, as I stand before God, I stand before him, want to be judged, and let me be clear, God knows that my heart is true. The second reason that we see here is that Paul loves the church at Corinth. He loves these people. It's more than just an organization. It's more than just a collection of people. These are men and women and children that Paul has invested his life in. And he sees his role as a father. And maybe he had in mind Colossians chapter 3, a letter that he had wrote to the church of Colossae when he says, 
fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So Paul, or Paul as a father of these men, of these men and women, remember we had saw through Scripture where he, he likened himself to their father. That's how he thought of them. Is that his desire was to lead them and not to discourage them. And many times we fathers, we know that there have been times that we have discouraged our children or been discouraging to someone else when we come with full guns blazing in a matter of conflict. But he doesn't want them. He sees his role as a father, and he loves them, and he wants his, his rebuke or his, his discipline here to be one that shows his love. The third thing we'll see that Paul is not interested in asserting power or defending himself, but he's motivated by redemptive purposes. Now we misunderstand, we need to understand that Paul is more than capable of coming in with a rod of iron. In the in this first letter to the Corinthians, previous to this, when he heard about some problems in the church, he says, Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon. And if the Lord wills, I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but I'm going to find out their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love and the spirit of gentleness? So Paul knew the, 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 the power that he had as the founder and father of this church. Just as a father knows that he has the power to condemn his children and to bring them to tears, or he has the ability to love and comfort them and to encourage them. Well, I have to say I've made more problems with the shock and awe view. You understand what I'm saying, parents? So we come in it with guns blazing, grenades going, and all of a sudden we may have control, but we have not encouraged. We've done, we've, we've done the opposite. So instead of using his authority to browbeat them into submission, Paul desires now for their faith to lead them to correct action. That's why he says, we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. In other words, if you're truly trusting in God, if you've submitted yourself to God, your faith should be the one that corrects you. John Calvin, the great theologian, writes on this passage, he says, faith should be completely free of any bondage to men. We should note well who it is that it says this. For if ever any mortal man had a right to claim such lordship, Paul was he. Thus we conclude that faith should have no master but the word of God, and it is not subject to human control. Spiritual lordship belongs to none but God alone. This is always a settled principle. Listen to this. This is something that applies to me but also to you. This is always a settled principle that pastors have no special lordship over men's conscience because they are ministers and helpers and not lords. Now this is powerful for me because I grew up in a place in which the pastor told you how to act, how to dress, what to do, what to, where to go, and what not to do. But let me share with you, that's why you don't hear this from me. I am not your conscience. My goal as, as, as the pastor of this church, as the under-shepherd, is that we are to increase and grow in faith, and your faith is to be your conscience. Now that doesn't mean that leaders don't have ways in which they are to guide that faith, but it's to be faith, not a shock and all. 
And maybe some of you have been under uh, either a pastor or leadership, maybe at work in which the leadership and those over you used a shock and all type experience to keep you in control. But yet that's not what God has called us to. So Paul says, I'm not going to lord it over you. I want you to use your faith. There's some things that you need to understand. There's some ways in which you need to grow in which you can help diffuse this situation. So even though Paul has the opportunity and probably has the power to do so, he refuses to do this in this case. Which brings us then to chapter 2. So Paul wants to build up their faith instead of just coming in and shocking and awing them. And that's where we come in chapter 2, verse 1. For Paul says, because of this, so that's his mindset, I'm desirous to show you love, I don't want to lord it over you, for I made up my mind, because of that, I have made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. I am not going to come right away. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one in whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did so that when, the, that when I do come, I might not suffer pain for those who have made me rejoice. In other words, I don't want to hurt you again by lording it over you, but I wrote a letter so that you may understand. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. Verse 4. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Let's look at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Verse 8. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let me share with you here. Paul is sharing, I wrote this letter so that I may grow your faith, so I may not be more painful, so it may not cause any more hurt. He understands the, the tenderness of the situation. So he says, I wrote this letter for three reasons. One is he writes so that his next visit would bring joy instead of pain. He writes so that his next visit would bring joy instead of pain. In other words, he understands that really what needs to happen is that repentance needs to happen on their behalf. Until they repent, there's going to be problems there. As he writes letter, for godly grief uh, produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What is he saying? Is you need to repent of what's going on. We need to uh, solve this issue between you and I. And I'm writing so that you may have your joy, that we may solve this problem. The second reason he writes is so that they may know his love, as he says in verse 4. 
For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish, not to cause you pain, but that you may know the abundant love I have for you. In other words, I want you to know that I love you. But the love for each other is going to cause us to have discipline. Now, we don't have that letter. That letter has been lost to us for all time. God, in his wisdom, designed it not to be preserved. How many of you, though, would like to read that letter? I think, as he says, it's a severe letter. It was probably a tongue lashing in the spirit. Well, maybe not so much the spirit, but it was a tongue lashing. He was probably telling, this is what you've done wrong. You did not back me up. This is wrong. And so the reason for his letter was to bring repentance, to discipline, to show them where they've gone wrong. And he's telling them, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, as Proverbs tells us. Or not be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves those whom he loves, and as a father the son in whom he delights. And so he addresses them and says, I need you to know my love. I know the letter may be tough. It may be severe. I wrote it with tears. It soaked with my heart. But the reason I write it is to bring you into repentance, to discipline you, to bring you into a right standing so that we can be reconciled. And then in verse 9, we see the third reason why he writes. He writes to test their obedience, as he says in verse 10. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. In other words, are you taking care of the issue? You see, what we see here is something that you and I need to understand as we come together as a church. The goal is for the church is to take responsibility of self-correction. And learn to stand on our own faith. Paul is not desirous of ruling with a hard hand, but for the church to grow and to recognize when sin is in its midst. And I had to ask myself, well, how is he testing their obedience? What we know from the evidence of the letter is that Paul is calling them to discipline this, this man. The incidents were left in the dark about really what happened though many people have speculated over the years. The person who caused this pain is unknown. But the, from the evidence that we have from this letter, it seemed that the man had rejected Paul's authority. And most likely he rejected Timothy when he came on Paul's behalf when he visited the church, and that he was fermenting a rebellion. And that's really all that we know, but we know that it's struggling with the church and it caused a painful visit. But what we see here is that when there's sin in the body, we need to take care of it. And the question is, well, why do we need a biblical why do we need to take care of anything in the church? Why should it? If two people are not getting together, if there's a problem between a pastor and another member, and what why is that an issue? Why do we even need to worry about sin? As long as they're not doing it here, does it really matter? But you and I need to understand that we need to understand, have a biblical understanding of sin in the body. And here's what you need to understand, as Paul says. Now, if anyone has caused me pain, he's talking about the sin. He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, he's caused it to all of you. In other words, we need to recognize that sin is a rebellion against the lordship of Christ. It's one who says, I will not submit to Christ. Sin also damages the whole body, as, the, as Scripture tells us, that if one part of the body is weak, so is the other. If one suffers, the rest suffers. 
Bible also tells us that we need to grieve over sin. If we were to go back in 1 Corinthians, you'll see that that was some of the problems that was going on in Corinth. As sin was really rampant in the church, and people didn't care. They, they, they overlooked it. They ignored it. They allowed it to happen and never approached it or never held it or took it at face value. And the church must be aware of the dangers of sin in the church. As it says, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like bars of a castle. And so we as a church, we need to be careful and keep our, our church free from those types of things that will harm it. What does the church do when there's sin in the body? What does the church do when there's conflict? What does the church do when there's gossiping or quarreling or fighting between members? Well, we go to Matthew chapter 18. Many of you know this is a famous portion of Scripture. We looked at it several years ago. If you want to turn to it, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives an example of what to do when there's sin in the body of the church. If sin is rebellion, if it damages the whole body, if we're to grieve over sin, there's something we need to do. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In other words, deal with it personally. And if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. And that's the first step. And that's, that's the step that it should be. Our faith should be such is that when we have problems among each other, that we deal with it in a godly way. But, in verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence, or two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church as a whole, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So very simply, as you try to resolve conflicts, there's a reconciliation. You try to do it between the two offending parties. When that doesn't work, you bring someone else with you. Why? As a witness and as as someone who says, listen, this is a problem. We need to deal with it. When they don't listen, you bring it to the church. The church then speaks as a unified body saying, this is sin. We cannot allow it to happen. And if that offending brother does not repent and change, the Bible says then the church is to send that person out. In other words, say, you're no longer part of that church. Your life is not uh, conducive to the Christian life and to the, to the cause of Christ. It's not consistent with someone who claims to follow Christ. Now, that seems pretty harsh, but yet that's the discipline of the Lord. He says you need to understand how important it is, because a little leaven, he says, leavens the whole lump. Verse 18 Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, if the church makes this decision, I will agree with you. If you bind this person, then I join with you. In other words, you have that authority. Hence what we were seeing as Matt read Deuteronomy earlier. What it was saying is that we as individuals, you must take um, responsibility for your own. To listen and to make resolution. He goes on again, I say to you if, you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, 
it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Hence why he says, for such a one in verse 6 of chapter 2, this punishment by the majority is enough. It's enough. You've done what you've been called to do. You are to cast him out or to put him out of the assembly. Let him know that this is so wrong that, that he's evicted, so to speak, from the church body. Way too often you and I seek to terminate relationships or whatever the source of our pain and disputes too quickly, thinking that it's easier to do that. However, we must understand that rather than glossing over problems, rather than ignoring the problems, we must confront them. And many times confrontation is never fun. It's very difficult, but it's a a sign of love and obedience. Unless we question Paul's motivation here, Paul's motivation was not to get back at the man who had caused him so much problem but for them to see the pain that it caused not only him, but also the church as a body. And Paul knew if that man stood there and continued with those things, it would destroy the body of Christ there at Corinth. You and I need to understand how important and dangerous sin is in the body. So Paul says, take care of this and take care of it in the words of Christ. For we could rightly assume that Paul, as an apostle of Christ, would have shared with them the words of Jesus. They would have known how to take care of this. In 1 Corinthians, we see that he had said that about the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Or his sister, uh, uh, yes, his mother-in-law. He had said, cast him out. Take him away from the, from, from the body. Why? Not to punish, but to discipline. And see, here's the thing that we need to understand, is that the reason why we discipline, whether it's in the church or whether it's as parents, and understand this, the reason that we discipline is not for punishment, but for repentance. It's to bring them back, for them to see the, 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 the folly of their ways. I would take a side note, if I could, just for a moment, just as a little commercial here. Parents. In your dealings with your children, when you discipline your children, it's not for you to say, oh, I'm, you're getting it. I'm punishing you. What you did was wrong, and boy, you went against me, and you're going to pay the price. That's a wrong view of parenting. It's a wrong view of God. What it is is that our, our discipline is to bring them to repentance. So you say, well, when is my job of discipline finished? Is it after I, I use corporal punishment? Is it after I, they get 10 minutes in time out? Is it after I send them in their room? No. Your discipline is not done until it produces repentance. Till they see the sin and the folly of where they're going. For that's where God leads us to. And so I would share with you as a church, we need to do the tough work of seeking reconciliation through church discipline. You know, my prayer is that we never have to do that. We have done it. It's not a fun process. And we've seen it eat away at the church. But I don't know here, there could be some ferment of that here. If so, we need to deal with it. And it's not always the case of someone against the pastor. Many times it's one brother against another brother or sister against a sister. 
For all the one another's that God has called us to do, he's called us to love one another, to encourage one another, to submit to one another. One person has added up, there's 65 one another's in the Bible. That's why we say that we live life together and allow sin to raise its ugly head into the body and to avoid it would lead us to to cause a, a cancer to grow within the body of Christ. Now, as we see here, Paul writes this letter and says that you need to discipline this man. For what he's done is harmful and it's against the body of Christ. Paul is joyful as he hears that they have done so, but yet his heart is still heavy. Because the end is not just discipline that brings repentance, but they were missing the second part of the equation as their response to the offender. And we see this in verses 8 through 10. For he says, so I would rather turn forget." or let's look at verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So what we see is this man has finally come to repentance, but yet the church has done the, 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 the hard job of church discipline, but they haven't brought him back into the fold. We see that repentance is reconciliation is what he desires. So Paul, so, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. This is why I wrote to test. You must forgive. Look at ver, or as we go on here, is our response to the offender must be threefold. The first thing that you and I need to do is we need to forgive the offender of his sin. Luke chapter 17 tells us this. Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, we must do what? Forgive him. That's difficult to do. But Paul says you must forgive this man. Why? Because that's what faith, faith has called us to do. Not only must they forgive him, but they also must exhort him, the offender, to lead a godly life. They need to exhort him to lead a godly life. In another letter to to a church in Thessalonica, he says, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhort each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What do they need to do is not only forgive him, but they now need to reaffirm their love for him or or help him to lead a godly life. Which brings us to the third one, which I just said, is they need to affirm the offender of his love. They need to affirm him. As he says, so I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. Let him know that he's loved. If reconciliation and repentance has come, then you need to reconcile completely. As Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved and compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgive each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What is Paul going? He says, listen, church, 
I love you as a father. I can go in there, and as a father, I could probably go in there, and I could whack the weeds. But you know what? You need to do the work. So I didn't come to you, but I wrote a letter. And I wrote the letter to, to, to kind of calm the situation down. You and your faith, you need to do what is right. Discipline this man. Do not allow sin to grow in your midst. Do not let others be affected by it. So the church does so. He tests their obedience and they pass, as we'll see later as we go through this letter. But yet now Paul says, now that that job is done, you now need to do the second part, is by reconciling, by bringing them in. Love them, affirm, affirm them, help them to lead a godly life, encourage him to grow in his faith. It's only then that reconciliation is finally completed. Why is this so important? Why is this so important in the church? Well, we see this in verse 11. Go back to that, if you would, of the second chapter. As he says in verse 10, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence. But look at verse 11. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Why is this so important to this twofold approach, to this reconciliation, discipline, and bringing back in? Because Christ's ministry... Christ's very ministry is the one of reconciling God and man. That's the work of God and Christ. And Satan hates God's work of reconciliation. And not only is God reconciling himself with man, but in the very sense is he's also reconciling us with each other. When you have two hearts that yearn for Christ, we're reconciling the the differences in humanity. We're we're putting down our pride and all those things that work to create conflict. Satan hates the work of God. For in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, of forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. And let me tell you, Satan does not want you to have a forgiving heart, whether it's with each other or with others outside of the church. He does not want you to do that. Forgiveness, he wants to be outside your scope. You and I need to realize, though, that we must keep in mind that you may have disputes and you may have problems, but you need to recognize that that's not a battle against flesh and blood, but it's a cosmic battle. For you and I think of people that are our problems. We hear those phrases all the time, boy, my job would be just great if I didn't have to work with people. You know what? People can be difficult. A marriage can be difficult. It doesn't matter how much you love each other, you are going to butt heads at some time, right? And it just seems like they know how to push your buttons. And they know how to push it quick, and they know how to push it hard, and to keep it going. To work in a place is, is works with conflict. Brother against brother, sister against sister, parent against child. It just goes on and on and on. And we see those people, and we ferment hate, and we allow anger to rise. But here's what you need to understand, is your battle is not against them. We've looked at this before. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, the Scripture tells us, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in this heavenly place. So you may be here today and you may be struggling in your marriage, but your enemy is not your spouse. It's Satan who's seeking to destroy your marriage. You may be having problems with your children and your family, but again, your enemy is not the members of your family, but it is Satan who is seeking to ferment rebellion and anger and hate and pride. And until we realize that, we will be slugging it out with the wrong people. All the while, Satan is sitting there and he's just in glee as the world is burning. He's like Nero fiddling as Rome burns. You see, that's what he is. Have you ever had one of those people who causes problems with people? He gets other people to fight, and then they stand back and kind of watch? I never liked those type of people, but that's what Satan is. It's not even going to stop, whether it's in the church or in the families. He's wanting to break up marriages. He's wanting to break up families. He's wanting to break up nations and relationships. That's his goal. That's why he says, do not be ang- or ignorant of his devices. Understand what he does. He says the same thing. Stand against the devil's schemes. You need to realize that Satan seeks to ferment bitterness and unforgiveness in the church and in the marriages and the families of his people. He goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, put away falsehood. Paul says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Why? Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The problems for some of us is not that we've cracked the door a little bit, It's not the fact that Satan can pick the lock. For many of us, we leave the door wide open. And we just say, walk right in. And we allowed our pride and our anger. And we allow it to ferment. That's Satan's work. And our hearts and our minds have become the playground of the one who seeks our destruction. Paul says, be sober-minded. He says, be watchful in 1 Peter. Or Peter says, writes this. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The good news is even though that was happening in the church of Corinth, we find that Paul writes to them and they respond in the correct way. Their faith leads them to an obedient life. Paul now says, now close the door. Let reconciliation be full. Not only discipline, but bring him back. Repentance is done. I pray that that's the way that we as a church will be. I pray that you as a Christian, that that's how you and your relationships will be. Do not let sin be fermented in your heart. Do not seek to live out the pride of your life. As a community of Christ followers, we must respond in love and obedience to God's word. Let's us vow not to give Satan any foothold into our church or into our hearts. And the last thing I want us to ask is let you and I together, let us seek to honor each other, not only in word, but also in deed. Let us escape the tragedy of the church of Corinth. Let the word of God inform us, and may we trust in the promises of God. Amen.
Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I think of Paul and his heart. I can almost imagine how painful this was. I've experienced something very similar to myself. And Lord, it could be backbreaking. Lord, it could be so demoralizing that you, you, just, you just despair of ever having any reconciliation. But I thank you for your work. I thank you, Lord, that you've called us to live out our faith. And I pray like the Corinthians that you would strengthen our faith, that we would recognize the work of Satan. Let us not be ignorant of his devices. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our church. Lord, that we may be able to withstand it, not only as a church, a corporate, not only as a body, but also in the lives of each and every one as they live out their life each and every day. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.